Our very first Ancient and Justified podcast was with Rosella. However, you never got to hear it because soon after we made some changes. We changed the opening music and more importantly, we started to make use of the extensive HiMac magazine collection and getting our guests to react to old articles about themselves and old quotes. And we hadn't done that with Rosella. Still, we're all about documenting dance music history one legend at a time. And of course, Rosella is a legend and our very first podcast is also part of dance music history. And so without any further ado, here is that very first show. Enjoy. Amazing. So now I know how to do this. If you love the OCD, I don't like those mags behind me, or that little towel here. Hold on. Oh, stop one it. Right, one second. James, sit down. Now it's getting stupid. Put your headphones on. James. Yeah. <laughs> James. Come, let's record. What? Welcome to Ancient and Justified. MGV Party Zone. Revisited. With me, James Hyman. And with me, Simone Angel. Mr. James Hyman, we meet again. <laughs> and if only people knew the calamity and all what's gone before we met. Even just setting this whole thing exactly. up. Exactly. But we're here. I'm very excited. Why are we here? Look, we were both involved in a very, very exciting, I would say brilliant program on MTV Europe that ran from 1988 to the year 2000. It's called MTV's Party Zone. You were the presenter. I was the main producer and director. I will give credit to Chris Howe and Lawrence Coe who were there, but consistently throughout those decades, it was you and me. And we were documenting mm -hmm. club culture and the dance scene really on visually on television before anyone did it before the internet was there we would go and interview the who's who of dance music the people who weren't massive yet at raves in the studio all around the world and broadcast this to 60 million households across europe and people loved it and people loved it who didn't even see it initially you know there's the youtube comments there's all the facebook groups that people set up and say party zone i miss that golden era well we can't give you really that golden age because it's gone, but we can revisit it, right? Yeah. We can we can unearth that nostalgia and unearth, look, I mean, I have been doing some unearthing. That's what we're going to do. Even finding the original tapes. You've right? been finding the tapes? Yeah. All these years, you've just been sitting on all this stuff. And I'm sure your wife has been wondering what on earth you were doing with all this what the point was of it but maybe this was it right you were just waiting for this moment I, I, I always said it to you didn't I every time we were filming I said this is really really important stuff it's so important to document whether you're you know you could be a documentary maker in in not just dance music of course in any other sphere but documenting and preserving important parts of history to me is is a must it's a necessity and we did it we did that in dance music so we want to share that with everyone now and revisit it. Who are we going to kick off with? 
We're going to kick off with Rosala, and you know what I'm so excited about. So, mm. um, so I've been talking to a few different people to come onto the show, and I hadn't quite decided who should be the first one. And then you send me the rundown of my very first party zone, which was on the 14th of September, 1991. And I started to make a little Spotify playlist of all the tracks that were on that show. Rosala's track, Everybody's Free. I mean, what a track, right? And we an and we played that, and it wasn't actually released until the 17th of September, which made me think that mm, this could have well have been the first time that the video was played on MTV and maybe even anywhere in the world, which would have made it a first for her and for me. What I thought would be really nice is to actually do another first with her, to have the first episode of our podcast with Rosala once again. So I'm very excited. Very, very good. That show, if my memory serves me correct, and looking at the records, we aired, it was like a dance floor show, because we also did, okay, a slight side thing to Party Zone was the Saturday afternoon show, Dance Floor, which, you know, they tied together. They were, they were like the brother and sister. 12th of March, 1994, was when we had Rosala on. Now, we haven't unearthed everything yet. We are working on that. But, you know, these, this, this footage will come. And that was, yeah, that's 20, what, seven years ago. Wow. You did that interview with wow. her. And it would be great to, in time, revisit it. But you can revisit it by interviewing her. And I guess yeah. what we always used to do, me trying to be a good producer, was giving you, you know, some food for thought when you interview her. So I was kind of thinking, obviously, when you speak to her and do your interview, for me, what was interesting, she supported Michael Jackson in 92, pretty big how did she feel mm -hmm. then how does she feel now a lot happened to michael jackson in between 92 and his passing so it has her opinion mm -hmm. of you know him changed in all that time obviously the massive hits three big ones faith in the power of love everybody's free to feel good that we talked about and are you ready to fly um and she, one the first cover version she recorded because you know people do their cover versions was a OJ song called I Love Music, which got into a very good film called Carlito's Way. Do you remember that film, Carlito's Way? With Sean ah, Penn and, yes. uh, Sean Penn and Al Pacino. And in fact, reminds me of another good party zone memory. Someone made a very like thumping house track. I think it was called Carlito's Revenge. We were in some crazy rave. I'd have to play you the tune to remember, and it was like, oh, Carlito, we used to be kings. Boom, like really pumping. Anyway, Carlito's way. Um, look, she's still going. Still, you know, 2020, released a song, Magnificent. So the longevity is pretty impressive with her. Yeah, she that that's that's the feeling I got that she just never stopped making music. She made like a jazz album or something as well. That's right. A few yeah. years ago. One thing I found interesting, again, is always often, as we know, is the relevance of these people that they're still, we said she's still doing music. And I was checking something out. Um, there's a guy called Tony Davis who has this UK fanzine called UK Rave 1991. And he's got these fantastic pictures that really sum up the spirit of rave, the real sweatiness, pre-internet, pre-phones, not everyone just holding their phones up, actually living for the moment, enjoying it. And she did a PA, I think it was at Nottingham's Venus Club, right, in 1991. And DJ Magazine interviewed this guy about his book. And basically, he describes it where basically, when Mazala was there. It was a Friday night, 
in Venus and she, everybody free was, she did a PA basically. The whole place went ballistic and there's a picture, you can uh, find it online where basically she said it just, I think it was taken at about two or three in the morning, right? And he, he describes it like this. This is club ecstasy, isn't it? I never really like pictures where people were looking at the camera. I like people who look lost. But when people see this, they buzz off it. This is what clubbing is about. No cameras, no nothing, just the moment, you see? And that's it. Wow. And I always wondered with Rosala, because she always seemed like, I don't know, just she seemed in a way quite out of place. She came from Zambia, Zimbabwe. Correct. I don't think the rave scene would have arrived in Zambia at that point. So where on earth did she come from? That was the feeling I had. And, and I always wondered what it was like for her to be in these really crazy hedonistic nightclubs and raves when she didn't strike me as mm. a raver. So I always wondered what that was like for her. So I'm really uh, curious to, to chat with her about that. And especially looking back. Um, what that experience was like. But I'll find out everything. I wish yeah. you good luck. So. I wish you luck and report back afterwards. I will do for sure, James. Thank you so much. Cheers. Rosala. thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me, Simone. Really appreciate it. Oh really God. lovely to see a face from back in the day. Oh, I my gosh. Oh, right. So oh long ago. Oh, my gosh. Lovely. The reason why I was so excited about having you on the show was really for, for two, well, three main reasons. Of course, I'm a fan. I, I love your music. Thank you. But um, I love the fact that the very first Party Zone I ever did, which was on the 14th of September, 1991, I played wow. the video, Everybody's Free, and I'm kind of thinking it may have been the first time that video was played because it wasn't released until about three days later. So I'm thinking that might right. have been the first time that video was played. It was my first time on the show. And, and now to start with a whole brand new you know, project again, to start with a podcast and to start it off with you again, it just feels kind of symbolic and nice. And Brilliant. you know, it's a little over 30 years now since that happened. Yeah. Yes, 30 years, 30 years old. Crazy. So I'm really happy to have you. And the other reason why I'm so happy to start the series with you is because our list of guests is quite long and the vast majority are men. Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I like men. But to start with a woman, I'm like, yeah, this is nice. So, yes, thank you. And, thank you. And, of course, I really want to go into all the stuff that happened in your career. And, and, you know, you've had so many amazing highlights. But what I really would like to start with is to go yeah. back, go all the way back. And for you to just paint a picture for us of what your yeah. early childhood in Zambia was like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was born in Zambia, in Andola, which... Uh, Indola is known as the copper belt of uh, Zambia. That's where they have the copper belt mines, you know, mining for copper and stuff like that. And uh, my grandparents grew me up on a farm, you know, and the reason that was is because my mom was very young when she had me. She was about 16 or 17 years old. Mm. So she had to carry on with school and stuff like that. So I was raised uh, by my grandparents who, you know, um, I grew up calling them mom and dad, you know, and... uh, I absolutely had a wonderful 
and happy childhood life uh, being raised by my grandparents. And then when my mum was old enough to take over and look after me, I moved to Lusaka, which is the city, you know, and mum was uh, more stable and uh, in a relationship, you know, and I met my other stepbrothers uh, with uh, um, my stepdad, who I never, ever looked at as my stepfather. He was dad because he came into my life when I was very, very young, and he was just an absolutely wonderful man. So, yeah, childhood was very happy. Wow. And so I read somewhere that in Zambia there's an insane amount of different tribes. It's like 74 or so, so, I mean, just a crazy amount of different tribes. So does that mean that everybody in Zambia is, is part of a tribe somehow, right? That's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, I used to hear there's uh, 72 different dialects in Zambia, you know? And so I only know of the ones that, you know, like my, my um, grandmother was a Nyanja speaking, you know, uh, which um, was a different part of, of uh, Indola. My grandfather was a Bemba speaking. And then I remember one of my aunts married someone that came from Choma and they spoke a language called Tonga. So <laughs> I just thought, let me stop there. Wow. And they are not related at all. They're all completely no. different languages. Completely, completely different languages. Wow. And how many yeah. languages? And then there's English that unites everybody right that's how everyone can communicate so how many languages do you speak well you know growing up in Zambia um when I uh, you know growing up in Ndola I started learning Bemba which was my grandfather's tongue and then we moved to Lusaka which is Nyanja so I started learning Nyanja and then uh we moved to Zimbabwe and that's a totally totally different language and by this point I just thought I'm just giving up I'm just going to concentrate purely on English wow which is years later a, a regret. It's a big regret, and I just always think, you know, I tell parents when your children are young, you know, allow them to speak another language other than their mother tongue because it's just wonderful. And that's my regret. I don't speak any of these languages fluently. I probably can go back to Zambia and um, get by with speaking Bemba if I get lost. Sometimes I speak to my Zambian relatives and they tease me. And they ask me questions and throw things at me. And some of these sentences can come like, uh, you know, Mulikwai, um, which is how are you or things like that. You know, I'm like, how do you even remember that one? <laughs> wow. So you have forgotten. But yeah, yeah, I have forgotten. I have. So you were 13 years old. Am I right? When you moved from Zambia to Zimbabwe. Is that right? I was I was about 14, 15 when we moved to Zimbabwe. How was that? Because that to me seems like quite an awkward age to be moving, right? It's that it's that yeah. age where you're a little bit uncomfortable in your own skin. You're yeah. trying to figure out who you are. And then right at that point, you move countries. And by the sounds yeah. of it, even to a place where people speak a different language. So yeah. how was that? Well, my dad is a Zimbabwean and he wanted to move back to Zimbabwe after Zimbabwe gained its independence in 1980. So that's when we moved. You know, and he said uh, he painted Zimbabwe to us children as the land of milk and honey. <laughs> so, you know, that awkwardness went out the window. And we're like, yeah, we want some milk and honey. And um, and we moved to Zimbabwe and it's an absolutely beautiful country, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, we, we had a really good life in Zimbabwe. My mom still lives in Zimbabwe. So do some of my relatives. Um, I try and make it a point to go home at least twice a year. And so Zimbabwe is home. 
That's like not Zambia. Zimbabwe is home. Well, both places are home, but Zimbabwe, the way I see it, Simone, is I, I believe, you know, I feel I spent my formative years in Zimbabwe. That's when things really began to turn around for me. That's when I began to, you know, keep focused on the things that I wanted to do in my life. And I kept on that path and I kept focused and this is what I want to do. This is what I want to achieve. You know, this girl started growing up. You know, and it happened in Zimbabwe. So tell me about that, because you started performing at quite a young age. Was that driven by you or was that driven by your parents? Like, where did this come from? Me. Really? <laughs> my passion, wow. my passion. I mean, you know, I never knew my real father, you know, sadly, but I, I did meet him. I could count on one hand probably five times when I was 19 uh, and, you know, my grandmother used to tell me he was a singer hmm. in a band. And I guess maybe that's where I got it from, you know. And I remember when I was going around Zimbabwe performing in this band. Um, we called the band Grab, G-R-A-B, uh, which was the first letters from our names, you know, Gabby, Rosella, Andy and Boyki. And we travel around Zimbabwe doing cover songs from... You know, the radio stations, uh, some, some African style music, mixing it all up. And I remember I was, I was in a town in uh, Zimbabwe called Gweru. And uh, my real father was living there. And I sought him out wow. to go meet him for the first time in my life. I was about 18 or 19. And, you know, um, and uh, I went to meet him. And somebody told me this is where he lives. And uh, the whole band came with me because they wanted to protect me. Oh. <laughs> I know it was quite, it was quite sad actually, but you know, when I met my real father um, for the first time, he was so emotional. He was a bit tipsy when I got to the house, but by the time he met me and he realized who I was, he sobered up in bang, mm -hmm. no time. And it was quite emotional, uh, you, you know, reunion, but it was lovely to meet him. And I met him a few times after that. I invited him down to Harare and just met him, um, you know, um, yeah. So what? And sadly, he's, he's passed on now. What did he think of the fact that you were singing? Ah, oh, he was overjoyed. And, and I remember he wrote me a letter when I started traveling to the UK. And he said something like, you know, in this letter, don't ever forget, you know, you're far better than Aretha Franklin will ever be. <laughs> oh. I thought to myself, I don't think so. But I mean, that's, yes. that's what he said, that's, you know. That's and, uh, precious. Yeah, yeah, that's precious. And I just cannot find that letter oh you know so that's what he said and uh yeah wow my stepfather uh who i say is my my father i, I don't even like using the word step because he came into mine and my brother's lives at a time whereby you know uh, he did everything he possibly could for us and uh he was my number one fan he really was my number one fan. My mom was a little bit on the fence because she felt, you know, especially when I started traveling to England to try and make this whole thing work. Her fear was, oh, you know, this music industry is sex, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> and she's going to get involved in drugs and, you know. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the know. stereotypes, they don't just come out of thin air, right? They are definitely based on something. It's, yeah, it's born on something, exactly. And uh, I remember before I started traveling to the UK, um, you know, um, my my mom was so worried and uh, we had a meeting with some relatives and my, my uncle, who's my mom's, um, um, 
younger brother, um, you know, sat down and said to me, look now, I trust you. You're going to go to England and do the right thing and make your music work. Don't go to clubs and bars and take drink and drugs and you're not that person. Honestly, I'm like, come on, guys, just give me a break, you know, but that's family. That's family. That- and uh yeah, it's love. I mean, that's love. It's that's love. basically when people say I had to tell myself that because my mom still to this day when I cross the road, she's like, please look both ways. Exactly. And, you know, be careful. <laughs> exactly. and I'm like, Mom, I'm nearly 50. What are you talking about? But you know, I now have to say, okay, my mom's basically just saying I love yeah. you. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You've got to you've got to accept that this is how they are looking at it. Otherwise, you, you know, yeah. you'll never understand. But um, and you know, many years later but you know they were quite right like we said in certain ways because pretty soon I mean you came to England and in no time you were like the queen of rave I mean talking about hedonistic (laughs) drugs and I mean it was wild and and I remember looking at you back then and being slightly baffled by you (laughs) because I'm like thank you Simone (laughs) no but but um, okay, I was quite convinced at the time that the rave scene would not have arrived yet in Zambia or Zimbabwe, right? So right. Yeah. here oh, gosh, you absolutely. were, and yeah. you were the queen. How? Yeah. Like, I just couldn't quite <laughs> put those two things together. And you didn't strike me as a raver necessarily. You, you weren't some crazy drug-taking, wild club kid. So I just couldn't put yeah. those things together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I remember um, when everybody's free to feel good, faith in the power of love, are you ready to fly, you know, were my biggest hits up to date. Mm -hmm. And um, I was going out and doing massive raves in massive warehouses and some were legal, some were illegal. The raves would hold anywhere between five to 10,000 people. Seriously, it was crazy. And you'd hear the cops came like three in the morning to chase everybody away and and then another rave would pop up there and I'd be singing at all of them, you know. And then the one morning I woke up and um, I'm being hailed as a queen of rave. <laughs> so what did you think? I mean, so you come, um, just, just, just talk me through this. So you come from Zimbabwe. You had a manager who persuaded you to go to England, right? Well, well in, in Zimbabwe, um, so, you know, like I said earlier, I was performing with Grab, you know, uh, doing cover songs. And there was a point where I thought... Um, it's not what I want to keep doing. I want to release original material under my own name, you know. And Simone, I'm one of these people that believes, you know, when you put something out there, life helps conspire to get you there or near there. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those people that believes that. And so the next thing, there was a talent contest. I won the talent contest and the prize was a recording contract. So there, my dream, you know, and I started recording my own material and doing videos. And then, you know, people at the the big radio station in uh, Zimbabwe, it was called Radio 3. I had fans that believed in me. So when I look back, I had, you know, I refer to them as my angels. People Mm -hmm. helped me. People who believed in me helped me. I could never have done it myself. The record label paid for my first tickets to come to the UK because they believed in me. Uh, Before we get there, there was a... Uh, a record producer from the UK uh, who was in Zimbabwe on holiday and saw one of my videos uh, on Zimbabwe TV, got in contact with a friend of his who happened to be a radio DJ in Zimbabwe and they were like, you know, just go try it out. So it was England that opened its doors to me. I was just desperate to become an international uh, singer, whether it be America or England and 
just so happened to be England. So uh, I, I met with this producer. He had a recording studio in Wolverhampton. My record label bought me my first three or four tickets to come here to start recording material. Um, at the time, it was cassettes. And we were sending around these cassettes to record labels to try and get a record deal, you know. And there was a lot of rejection, you mm -hmm. know, um, but equally also some uplifting uh, um, feedback. And one of those cassettes fell on the, the, the laps of uh, Tim and Nigel, who were known as the Band of Gypsies. Yeah. And, you know, I got to meet them. Uh, I told them what style of music I'd like to do. Yeah, I want to do dance music that's, you know, uplifting with positive lyrics and so when you listen to the whole album of everybody's free to feel good all the lyrics on there are positive and uplifting yeah. i mean the title track everybody's free to feel good oh. speaks volumes still to this day just those opening bars when those opening bars start playing i get like i get goosebumps you know it's like i have a physical reaction to it because to me that song completely summed up the emotion at the time for all of us. I was a little raver, you know. I was out at all these illegal yeah. raves. And it was that feeling that, yeah, we are free to feel good. We can do this. We're allowed to do That's this. Right. We're all in this together. And so you completely right. touched a nerve with that song. Did, did So you wrote that song? No, uh, it, it was written for me uh, by Tim and Nigel. You know, we went into the studio. They, uh, Tim, I remember Nigel said, I've got this um, lyric. It's, it's everybody's free. Just go in there. He put the music on. He says, just keep singing this round and round. So the melody came from me. Uh, and we all shared the idea of the melody together. And, and we tried different various ways to sing the chorus of Everybody's Free. And then Nigel said, that's it. We've got the chorus. That, that chorus works. That melody works. And then he's like, right, I'm going to write the lyrics now. And he wrote the lyrics uh, to the, verse, the verses. And that's how that came about. Oh, don't you just love the magic? When yeah. people of, and especially I think in, in when you first have that early drive, what you were talking about, you know, and how you kind of pull things into your reality. And also when you then get together with other people who yeah. have that drive too, and you have That's right. this, this crazy energy all blending together and just magic yeah. can be created. And it's absolutely. something just takes over. It's, it's incredible. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. When Tim and Nigel, uh, when we were working on the Everybody's Free album, it was... Uh, in Denmark Street at Denmark Studios where all the music was happening. They had, you know, shops that were selling instruments and stuff. So it was the hub of what was happening then. Um, I loved working with them. I loved working with Tim and Nigel. Uh, you know, I, I always tell them, you guys are my angels. You, you made it happen for me and vice versa. And, you know, really, really talented musicians yeah. uh, and songwriters and lyricists, yeah. And then the first time when you walked into a rave and you saw all these kids on ecstasy or whatever they were, just, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of crazy. What did you think? I mean, what was your first reaction? It was shocking because, you know, then it came back to what my uncle said about the drugs and this and that. And I'm going, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make my family proud. You know, but I'd, I'd seen some people taking stuff and it was just such a shocking thing to me. Um, but, you know, each to their own, <laughs> yeah. as they say. And I was there for a purpose and a reason. And I wanted to sing yeah. and make it in this industry, you know. And, yeah. I do think it was quite an interesting social experiment almost, you know, because... Um, 
as far as, as mind-altering substances go, I mean, this was a, a substance that people were taking that was really created for people in marriage counseling and, and oh, wow. people who, who need to um, get over PTSD and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly people were seeing the connectedness between, between, you know, between everybody. They were seeing the beauty in everyone. They were hearing the beauty in music in a different way. And so it was a, you know, I don't quite know what we ended up getting out of it, but it was an interesting <laughs> Um, it was an interesting, an interesting time. time. Yes. Interesting, I mean, you know, people have good memories, good yeah. smiles, whether they were drinks, drugs, sex and rock and roll or whatever. You know, everybody um, did what they did to make themselves happy. And what survived is the music. And ultimately, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Simone, you know, everybody's free to feel good turn 30 years old. Yeah. You know, thank God I'm still going out doing gigs that are, there's a lot of, I love the 90s or back to the 90s is giving us work yeah. over 30 years later. And how much fun. You must be having so much fun right now because you go to these gigs and you bump into people, like you said, from like 30 years ago or 20 yeah. years ago. And I can imagine as well that um, doing the gigs now, being older and being not being uh, driven, like before, I, I guess, you know, things were going so fast. And I'm sure yeah. you had the same oh, as gosh. me that a lot of it just goes past yeah. you. You know, you, you're just being pushed from here to there and you don't yeah. take it in. But I assume yeah. that now you can really take everything in. Am I right? Absolute, is that how it is? Absolutely. I, I try and give myself a moment to remember try to remember what's what's going on what i'm living through watch the audience reaction uh you know even listen to the sound uh, listen to the djs and just try and take it all in including the travel you know everything stayed in the hotel rooms it's all just such a gift and i try and just remember all this because going back to the 90s when it was all happening and the queen of rave was going out and doing a thing simone it went by like lightning mm-hmm it went by so quickly and I wish I could go back and just suck in and remember what happened then. But for me, it was a whirlwind. And you have to remember, I was this girl that just came from Africa into a foreign country and so many people helped me, my angels. And uh, I was just excited and just like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this, you know. <laughs> many years later, I'm older. Yeah, I'm going to do this, but I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> so another thing I would love to hear from you is what your experience was like being on tour with Michael Jackson. I mean, that's quite a thing. That, Simone, will remain one of the biggest highlights of my career to have supported, in my opinion, the biggest star at that time, you know, and when you're a young girl growing up in school, and I was such a big fan of the Jackson 5. And then they became the Jacksons. Michael Jackson became Michael Jackson in his own right. You know, we just loved them in school. And fast forward many years later, for me, this little African girl to be chosen as his support act on, sadly, his last dangerous tour in 1992. You know, I mean, wow. That was his wow. last tour. That was his major last tour. And then remember he was planning uh, on doing a comeback and doing a whole series of shows at the O2 or something to yeah, that effect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, that's yeah. getting goosebumps again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, incredible, incredible. 
So were you a fan of Michael Jackson growing up? Oh, big time. Really? Big time. So do you think, I don't know if you found this in your life, the things that I want really badly or that I'm dreaming about all the time, all these things happen. At some point they become a reality in my life. So do you have that experience? And was being on the tour with Michael Jackson kind of part of that? Was it part of your big dream maybe? That one wasn't, um, you know, but all I can say is I was such a big Michael Jackson fan. You know, to me, he was, I don't know, you tend to look at big stars as non-humans. You know, they're there and you're here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they live this amazing life in a palace or God knows what, you know, and you tend to forget that there are human beings just like you and I, maybe with the... Uh, you know, eaten out of a silver spoon or something and we're eaten out of plastic spoons or whatever. But they're all human beings just like you and I at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I just saw Michael Jackson as just someone that was not of this earth. I mean, big star. And then of course, years later, to have been chosen to be a support act for him on his dangerous tour in 1992 was just what dreams are made of for me, you know, really. And what was it like just to step on that stage and to look out over that crowd? I mean, are, are, are those some of the memories that have stayed with you? Like, what, what are some of the strongest memories? I assume that that moment, especially the first time you walked onto that stage, that oh. must be one of the moments that is stuck in your, in your mind. Absolutely. They will remain in my head forever, coming out and performing to 75,000 screaming fans at a stadium is just like it's what dreams are made of you know i don't think i will ever perform to seventy-five thousand people in my lifetime again i don't know i can only hope and dream nobody knows what the future holds but since then my biggest audiences have been anywhere between 10 to twenty thousand people which to me is still mind-blowing mm -hmm. but seventy-five thousand people jeez yeah. and i remember a time we performed uh I cannot remember the Parisian stadium uh, name in Paris. The fans were so eager to get in that I remember being told they either burnt the gates down or pushed the gates down. Wow. And they ended up being 100,000 fans in the stadium. And when I went on stage, Simone, you know, because I'm, I'm high up on stage and I can see the ones that are standing above their heads, so to speak, and they were so tightly knit together that they were swaying very slowly from side to side. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, and then I was told, that's what happened. They, they burnt the gates down or they broke the gates down and they ended up being 100,000 fans. And that was in Paris. I will never forget that because I could see, and I'm singing and I'm thinking, they're a bit too close together than usual. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Incredible. Incredible. And and what what was your um, what did you think of Michael Jackson himself when you got to meet him in the end? I had the opportunity of meeting him uh, twice on the tour. Uh, the first time he um, asked to meet me, uh, and we took professional uh, photographs and stuff. And he was so nice. I mean, really, I'm talking to Michael, and he's he's talking in a normal voice. You know they. There was this joke that he speaks in a high, a high voice. That was not the case at all, hmm. you know. And honestly, and he's talking to me, and uh, 
he cancelled at the last minute two gigs at the very last minute and uh, then you know he's asking me you know Rosella um, when I drive into the stadium I can hear the, the fans singing your songs and screaming because you, you remember everybody's free to feel good are you ready to fly and faith in the power of love were, were massive across Europe and he says and I can hear them screaming for you and it just really touches my heart and I'm going Oh, he's that's... saying that to me. He's saying that to me. And then, and then the next question he, he asked me was, you know, I, I cancelled uh, one of my gigs because I've been having throat voice problems. Uh, how do you look after your voice? I just wanted to faint. Wow. Because <laughs> I'm he like, asked that. Like, yeah. Like by the by Michael Jackson. Wow. By Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, you know, and uh, we took pictures, and I, I just thanked him for having me on the tour, and he was like, it's my pleasure. So, so do you think a lot of that then was just a persona that he created? You know, I always feel that when you're in the public eye, there is, there is you, and then there's almost like this hologram version of you, which is like the yeah. mental image that people have created of who you are, but you've, you're taking part in that too, right? You help create yes. this, this almost secondary person, the person who's a bit more perfect than you, a bit shinier, That's a right. bit, you know, and it's That's right. like that person's always in a good mood and, yeah. you know, and, and so, but there's this, this second entity that's you, but not quite you. And I yeah. guess with Michael Jackson, that entity just became massive. And he obviously fed into that as well and created this persona. But is the person that you met was, by the sounds of it, not that person. It sounds like no. you actually met the real Michael yeah, Jackson. Yeah, I did. I, I met the real Michael Jackson that I, be, I became quite territorial about him because I'm thinking they're writing things about him in the newspaper. And I met this guy and, and I think the papers or whatever you call it made up this alter ego of Michael Jackson and of course I'm sure he didn't help it as well you know that was <laughs> what he thrived on as far as his career was concerned but in some ways you need to as an artist or a, or whatever you need to have this I don't know alter ego if you want to call it but behind closed doors you're just who you are just a normal human being yeah how was it for you afterwards? Because Michael Jackson's life really kind of started to unravel. Um, there were the allegations against him and child abuse and all these things. Now, of course, I'm not going to ask you whether or not you think that's true, because how would you possibly yeah, know, right? So it's really, right. it's not my place. It's not your place, I don't think. But what I would like to know is, what was it like for you as a person to witness that from a distance? Like, how, how did that make you feel? I felt so shocked. I felt so sad and, uh, you know, I think our generation, when I think about it, will always see Michael Jackson as this amazing star, amazing singer, but the later generation will look at him as someone that, you know, his image has been tarnished, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I just see this fantastically talented artist with amazing songs, so that really just really made me feel sad. So you do know. you think we, we should, because that's always the question, right? Can the, the person and the art, can it be separated? Should it be separated? Or if someone does something really terrible, should they be cancelled? Should their music not be played anymore? Should their paintings be taken off the wall if they were, you know, amazing, you know, painters or whatever, whatever it is, whatever art they've created, mm -hmm. should we continue to enjoy it? 
or is that somehow wrong? Should we really, should we not listen to their music anymore? Should we not enjoy their art anymore? What's, what's your opinion on yeah, that? Yeah, I, th I think it's a punishment. You know, it's a punishment for whatever wrong deed they caused, however much it's hurt other people, other human beings. Do they, would, should they still have a place in that? I don't know. It's but a hard you know one, what? right? It's, it's, a, it's a hard one, it's a hard one. But then, you know, that's why there's museums you know, put their stuff up in the museum and go read about them. Well, and I think when it comes to art, any form of art, even if, you know, people don't look at that specific art anymore or listen to it anymore, the legacy always artistically goes on because there's yeah. always new artists that take their inspiration from whoever's yeah. come before. And in that way, I think once you start creating it, in, in a way, you never die, you know, there's always a exactly. little bit of you that is inspired the next generation and that kind absolutely. of carries on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so what, what was your feeling then? Of course, everybody was in shock when, when Michael Jackson died. Um, yeah. How was that for you having been closer to him than I guess? It, it was so it was so shocking, uh, really, really shocking and really sad because, again, I just always put Michael Jackson no matter what. On a pedestal his music will stand the test of time sadly his image because of certain allegations has been tarnished but um i felt sad i felt sad I, I still think he had a lot more left in him he's still a young man you know i hope that uh, the life uh, he would have had after that would hope hopefully allow him to justify all these negatives that he faced along the way who would you, know? You hope, I you mean, hope, you hope. Yeah, I mean, we, we we don't know, right? I mean, you don't know. because of course there is also the chance that really, yeah, he did do all these these terrible things. It's like, like I said, even though you toured with him, how could you possibly know whether you, you or not that, that was true? You, you can never know. You know, nobody knows what happens behind anyone's closed doors. Only that person themselves. So you always uh, want to think the best. Yeah. Of of that person. Yeah. After you know, the craziness of the 90s and you had this huge success and you, you've never stopped yeah. making music, but the music that you were making after, it didn't yeah. reach those same yeah. heights again. How was that? Like, that must have been pretty tough emotionally, oh, gosh, I yeah. assume. How, how did you it deal was with tough. that? It was tough, but, um, you know, when I met my husband, who's my husband now, um, you know, because uh, there was a period where, you know, it hasn't always been on a high there were some downers and uh, I remember when the boy bands and the girl bands were happening you know Simone I was lucky if I got one club date in a period of two months and that's coming from doing anywhere between five to seven club dates in a day you know that's that's how I earn my living mm -hmm. you know is going out and, and doing live work so all this started you know going by the wayside uh, I was dropped by Sony and I'm thinking is this the end of my career but, uh, you know, when I look back now, um, I met my husband. I had the opportunity to, you know, um, get to know him and be in a relationship, you know, uh, because as you know, well, I don't know if you do know, but traveling as much as I was then to sustain a relationship would have been really difficult. So I look back and I think, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. You know, I'm with my husband now. Fortunately, we've been together 27 years. Um, I continued making the music when things started happening. Um, I don't know if I'll have another big hit like Everybody's Free in that vein, but I continued making music. And, and one of the things my husband said to me was, you know, if you never had another hit single again, 
would that be the end of your world? And I mean, at that time, I used to think that it would be because that's all I was doing. And I thought, actually, it wouldn't be the end of my world because the end of my world would be the loss of my family and my friends and those that I love. The music is mm -hmm. part of the gravy, you know, and, yes. and that's how I look at it. So I still have the opportunity to make music, good music. I love, you know, making new material and going out there. And whatever happens, Simone, whether it becomes another Everybody's Free or not, I still have this gift and this opportunity to make music. And for that, I'll, I'll be eternally grateful. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that because I was listening to the song that you released, um, I Want You Back. If this song had been released right after Everybody's yeah. Free, it would have been a yes, massive Yes, exactly. Hit. I, I think you know, so. <laughs> and again, all, and all the mixes, they're such good club yeah. mixes. Yeah. Right? So it's so much fun. And it, in a way, you almost feel like, oh, it's kind of unfair, you know, because it doesn't get that same push that it would yeah, have had back right. then. But but this is just what it is, exactly. right? I mean, I'm, I'm glad it doesn't stop you making yeah. music. And I think, see the whole industry has changed so much i think before there were the big gatekeepers right it was like the big record yeah. labels and the management and of course mtv was basically deciding what people were watching and listening yeah. to and now the gatekeepers yeah. are gone it's a free it's a for free, all yeah. anybody yeah. can go anyone can go make music right. make youtube videos tiktok videos whatever which is great on the yeah. one hand because it gives people an opportunity who've never yeah. had that opportunity before but the downside of it is that there's now so much material out there it makes it much yeah, harder it's, it's messy. to stand yeah. out because it's yeah. and, and I think a lot of people are overwhelmed it's hard for them now to find stuff because they can't see you know the wood yeah. for the trees it's just there's so much yeah. out there and I guess that's what happens you release stuff and it just it's, it's out there it's in a maze you know at least with the right. back in the day when everybody's free and all was released and having the record labels you had some kind of structure you know, some kind of management, but you know, you don't have management now. You have your artists releasing stuff, which I'm I'm pleased for them because otherwise, how would they get into that whole system of you know having their tracks heard? Um, so all I can hope is that they get some kind of management or person to manage them that believes in their work and them as an artist. But you know, we live in a world that's not fair. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but I guess I guess neither of us can complain. No, 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 that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, here I, here I am and here you are. You know, we, we are still doing we our thing. We, we've done our thing and I'm still recording material. Blessed. Yeah, we've been blessed. blessed. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Totally, totally blessed. Um, so what do you when, you, when you look at how much things have changed, what is it um, that you really admire about this, this next generation and this next generation of artists that are coming up right now? Uh, well, as we were saying earlier, I have to say the freedom to do their own stuff because also being with the record label back in the day could also be restricting. You know, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a hard balance, you know. Uh, so you've got the freedom of releasing your own material. I think uh, Ed, Sh Ed Sheeran did his own stuff. Look at where he is. And now he's got the record label behind him, but he brought everything to the table before any label helped him. 
Oh, I mean, you know? so so many people these days. I mean, they become TikTok exactly. stars, and yeah, I was talking. I, I was thinking about Ed Sheeran because um, I've noticed as well that African music is yeah. becoming. You know, it's getting a lot more attention than ever before. I mean, talking about TikTok, you've got that Casey who had this huge hit this year. There was, um, or last year, then there was in in 2019, there was the um, Jerusalem challenge all over the world. And and Ed Sheeran uh, recently did like a mix of Bad Habit. Um, he did like a um, I'm a piano right. mix, oh, which wow. is of course like the big African wow. sounds wow. right now. Um, so with with that in mind, I mean, would you ever consider releasing something that's more African inspired? Hell Maybe something yes. like I'm a piano. Oh or, my goodness! Right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, a friend of mine. I went to visit her about a couple of weeks ago. And she played me some African-style Afro beats. Um, and she's like, this is big. You need to get in there. And I've had a few producers saying, look, we can do some of your mixes. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I listened to this artist. I'm not too familiar with her. I think her name is Tiwa. And she did uh, a duet with Brandy. And Brandy from America is doing an Afrobeat style music and I listen to this uh, and I watch the video and I'm thinking, that's that's me, I'm African, that's from my home, but I've been doing more westernized yeah. music, which is something I wanted to do from the get-go anyway, you know, but um, there's no holding me back now and doing mixes that are Afrobeat sounds and uh, I think, exactly. I, think I, I feel so, so chuffed that uh, there's an opening for Afro style uh, music. I think, uh, you know, there's, I mean, Music is music, Simone, you know, um, and so I'm, I'm really pleased that platform is being opened and being heard. And I think this is where it's just been so democratized, yes. you know, good music can come through. Before, the gatekeepers were like, yeah. oh, you can only release English language That's songs. Right. Now you've got all the, all the Latin music Beautiful. and you've got African music, you've got everything and people are listening to it because the audience doesn't yeah. care. The gatekeepers always thought they yeah. cared. But yeah, they don't. they don't. If it's good Absolutely. music, and if it makes you dance, or it makes you happy, or it makes you sad, yeah. like you know, it, as long as it creates an emotion in you, and, and that's what I'm, then good it's music good, right? It's good music. I mean, you know, Bangra is one of my my favorite styles mm-hmm. of music. Yes. Where's that in the scheme of international music stuff? You know, yeah. uh, and I remember talking about that when I used to first travel quite a lot to America in the early '90s. One of the structures they had, which I found odd, but I didn't understand it, I do now. Billboard had, uh, diff- I mean, they had mm-hmm. rock music. They had mid-tempo. I mean, it was for certain types and styles yeah, of but music. but hold on. It was the white chart and the black chart. Exactly. I mean, it was just like, what? It freak- what are you guys doing? I didn't doing? understand. Soul, black R&B, and I'm going, yeah. music is music. No matter. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, that used to really baffle me back back in the 90s when they had separate yeah. charts. And so they wouldn't call it the black yeah. chart and the white chart. But that's basically what it came down yeah. to. You know, it was like the R&B and the rap that's on right. one side and then the white rock yeah. on that side. And I remember there was, there were certain acts where, you know, it was a mixed, yeah. you know, a mixed group of people of different, different um, ethnic backgrounds and, and where the American record labels uh, were kind of confused how to market them because they didn't really know which charts. Well, now now, like, you now know, that we have the freedom of, uh, you know, 
social internet or the internet, people are, are letting themselves, the, rate, the, the gates have been opened. So I'm, I'm yeah. excited to see what's, where this goes, but the Afrobeats music has really excited me. What advice do you have for someone who is just at the cusp of fame right now or just kind of starting to make it big? Looking back, um, what, what have you learned? Like what lesson would you want to give them and say, keep this in mind? Because you know how hard yeah. it is. I mean, failing yeah. is hard, but yeah. success is yeah. hard too. So what, what advice would yes, you give Yes, failing them? is hard, but looking back at what I've been through and what I'm still going through, uh, Simone, is never giving up never giving up it is a tough industry there have been moments where you know uh, I just want to stop and go enough you know but I have enough people that believe in me that keep me going I have this passion this fire that still burns in me and I still feel like I haven't reached where I want to in my career which is I can't understand it <laughs> it's yeah that's, good though. That yeah, keeps, that's you going. what keeps me going that's what keeps me going and then I go out and I do these gigs and I'm seeing, like, I did a gig uh, on Saturday night. It was a, a sort of a, a rave. So it took me back to back in the day. It, there were about 2,500 people in there, a warehouse-style gig. These guys that were watching me were probably born when Everybody's Free was released or long after. But they were singing the song word for word. That made me want to cry. And then it's that that keeps me encouraged. You know, I'm going, I could be their mother. Probably their grandmother. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know. <laughs> Mother then. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just never give up. And uh, the fact that I keep getting gig offers speaks volumes. Yeah. You know, the fact that uh, I have a record label that's, you know, I'm, I'm recording an album with that wanted to do one with me from years ago speaks volumes. So what... What do I have here is my passion and I never want to give up. I love singing. It's, it's what yeah. I do. It's what I was born to do. It's your gift. Yeah. You bring joy to people. That's, that's what you, you do. Yeah. Oh, so uh, can I ask you a really stupid thing? Wow, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you something stupid. So Trevor Noah does a stand-up routine yeah. where he talks about Zambia. All right. And he says that in Zambia, there's um, a tradition or it's quite common for people to be given names that are really kind of everyday English like um, like objects. So he said he met someone called two by four. He met a guy called screwdriver. <laughs> Did he just make this up? So this is what, <laughs> well, I mean, have you ever heard anything like that? I'm going to find out from my relatives. I'm never known anything of the sort maybe it's a phase that's happening now i don't know i don't follow that kind of thing i, I wouldn't know but no right. that's new to me no <laughs> okay it just it just stuck with me when i when i saw trevor noah talk about i was like i better check with her and then the other thing he said was that there's only five escalators in um zambia right. and that basically people go to the mall to ride the escalator it's almost like an event in itself you know people just love going up and down the escalator well <laughs> now that i mean i can kind of I, see it because yeah. i see these kind of things here in yeah. belize there's certain yeah. things that people you know i took my my staff one time to mexico yeah. and they saw a mcdonald's and they freaked out they're like oh my god because they'd never seen yeah. a mcdonald's because we don't have fast food restaurants here yeah. in belize yeah um and uh, and so i can imagine that 
if there aren't many escalators, yeah. then people would get very I, excited. Definitely, and, and definitely. Them. I, I, you know, Zambia is. Uh, when I, I went home to Zambia about two years ago, and each time I go back to Zambia, I just think, wow, this country is just growing and growing, and um, beautiful buildings. There's so many shopping malls with so many escalators. And I remember, I honestly, I remember I went to this one shopping mall and, uh, you know, there were um, these women and these men from the village really, really far out of the city that came to, uh, you know, and we were watching them and they didn't know how to use the escalator. So it was quite endearing and we were laughing, which wasn't very nice. <laughs> but, you know, I think now they must be used to it because it's, it's been some years now, but it's, it's a growing country and uh, yeah. But don't you think, though, watching those kind of things, and for instance, you know, I took a family here one time, you know, they live out in the countryside, they'd never seen the sea, so we took them to the sea, and they were all, yeah. you know, freaking out when they got the salt water in yeah. their mouths, because they never tasted that. But but seeing things like that, doesn't it make you just really appreciate a lot of the things that you just take for granted Absolutely. all the time? Because for us, it's all so normal, Absolutely. and then you see those people reacting like that, yeah. like, oh! Absolutely. So I mean, the, the other day, my husband and I were catching trains, you know, catching one train to the next train. And he said to me, you know, the way the train system is run in England is like military precision. How do they do it? And, you know, I'm thinking, coming from Zambia and Zimbabwe, we don't have those systems in place, you know. Uh, but is it because it's a first world country and that's a third world country? I don't know yet. Zambia and Zimbabwe have their own beauties, their own stuff going on. But it's so... Things are so ahead here in the UK. I'm talking about the UK because that's what I know. And and me coming from Africa with the tube system, uh, the train system, the buses, everything is just run like clockwork. For me, as an African, I just think, wow. <laughs> Amazing. Still to this till, day. Till, <laughs> till this day. Honestly, for me, I just think, because I go back home and I see. And I'm thinking, if the underground was here... You know, or if they had the, the train system or the, the bus system, but then, you know, they've got their own system, systems in place that works for them, which is great. But uh, I think just, you know, when I come back to England, I just think wow, things are just so advanced, so ahead. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's the future holding for you? Well, um, you know, uh, as you said, I've got a new single out, uh, I Want You Back. And uh, I've got an album to come that'll feature I Want You Back. We're hoping to release the album sometime uh, March, April 2022. Wow. So that's that's what I'm working on, yeah. Wow, it's so, so great. So making I, the music. I love it, I love it, I love it. <laughs> and thank you, Rosella. It's been so wonderful catching up with you. I'm just, oh, I'm so happy you were with me. Thank, thank you, you thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And I'm looking forward to <laughs> working uh, so when it comes out. You know, when I reread that article in ID, she was, and still is, arguably, a disco diva. They said she followed in the footsteps of, you know, Jocelyn Brown, Lolita Holloway. Did that come across in the interview? Did you still feel she had that disco diva sensibility to her? 
Well, I don't quite know what... Power in her voice. Right. I mean, I don't quite know what you mean with disco diva. She's definitely not a diva. Oh, my God. This woman is just... I think disco diva is, 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 an, is a nice way. They don't mean it like you're, you're a troublemaker and you're a real diva. I think disco diva is a compliment. Okay. Well, then, yes. Um, she just loves her music. She loves performing. And the thing I got from her is just... This, this strong sense of just gratitude. She is so grateful mm. for everything that she was able to experience in the past. The, the fact that she's still um, able to go and perform and, and, you know, go to all these 90s revival evenings and stuff. I mean, she's just loving it. She's having such a great time. And she, you know, she talks so full of love about her husband. I mean, she is just a very happy, thankful joyful person so it was great it was really nice catching up with her